come now to Fessor Thessalonians 5, and I want to just recap what we said about uh, chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4 there, about Jesus uh, coming, and just to summarize the conclusions that, uh, that, that we reached there, that the Lord comes, and we will be snatched away if we are amongst the, uh, the wise virgins who say we want to go to meet him immediately. And I said that First Thessalonians 4 and 5 are full of allusion to um, the Olivet Prophecy and particularly to the parables of wise and foolish virgins which follow that prophecy. And that parable of the wise and foolish virgins is a kind of an appendix to the Olivet Prophecy. And I would argue that that is really, ideally, or or primarily, let's say, a description of how things will be for the very last generation. And that's why if we consider that we are living just before the coming of Christ, or at least we should live as if Christ could come at any moment, as if we are the last generation, then that parable is very relevant to us. And here in Thessalonians, he's alluding to that all the way through. And I made the point that in Matthew 25, verse 6, the virgins are told to go out to meet him. And yet here in First Thessalonians 4:17, we have the same word used, that we which are alive and remain shall be snatched away in the clouds to meet the Lord, same word, meet in the air. And I suggested that this has all got a literal element to it, that as the eagle mounts up, into the air, travels through the air and comes down where the carcass is it's Luke 17, 36, 37 so that was in answer to the question of how is it all going to happen when one shall be taken and the other left at the coming of Jesus so the chronology if you like that I suggested was that there's the resurrection the angel comes to gather us uh, to go to, to meet Christ The unworthy delay, this is the foolish virgins who uh, say, no, I'm just going to go and uh, get more oil in my lamp, whereas the wise go immediately. And they are confirmed in that decision that, okay, sure, I'll go to meet the Lord. They don't have to go to a travel agent and buy an air ticket to get to Jerusalem. They are snatched away into the air, forming a cloud of glory, which is visible to all, and I suggested that they will be with their guardian angel, in that sense, uh, you make sense of uh, Matthew 24:31 that the angels will gather together his elect. And then they come with Jesus to Jerusalem, and they fulfill the Old Testament prophecies about the Lord appearing in a cloud of glory around Jerusalem. You've got that particularly in uh, Daniel 7, where Jesus comes with the faithful, symbolized as clouds, along with the angels, to the judgment seat. And you've got uh, Joel 3.11, Thither cause your mighty ones to come down. This is Jerusalem. Obadiah 21, Saviors shall appear on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau. And also the situation in Zechariah 14. And uh, we threw in there Jude 14, that the Lord is coming with thousands of his saints to execute judgment. And I suggested that we needn't worry too much about the the time element of trying to work it all out uh, literally. So, okay, you know, if that's got, what's going to happen, how are the rejected going to get to judgment, etc. Uh, because I suggested that the meaning of time is going to be collapsed. 
that it's not going to be a long line of people waiting for judgment, uh, even if it took uh, ten minutes each. And the implication of the Bible teaching about judgment is that it's going to be a going through of our lives, hearts and lives made bare by that process, and some element of uh, interreaction between the judge and the one standing before him. And uh, so I I suggested that there's not going to be a long line and all that. This could all happen in a millisecond of time as we know it. And incidentally, if Einstein had it right, if you collapse the dimension of time, as I understand it, you would collapse the dimension of space. So the whole issue of, well, how are we all going to fit in? Um, How is it all physically going to work out? I I just don't think we need worry about that. The crucial thing, as far as we're concerned, is that we are amongst those who say, yes, as soon as we realize that he's back, it could be that we're resurrected, and then we realize, well, this is it, Um, go to meet the Lord, or it could be we are amongst those that are living and remain until the coming of the Lord. All the same, the, the crucial thing is that we go immediately. And I suggested when we talked about 1 Thessalonians 4, that... Every time we think about our own sins and we think about him there on the cross, we have a choice to, as it were, flex our spiritual muscles, our our faith, that we believe that his love for me is greater than all my unreadiness, all my unpreparedness, my dysfunction, my sin, etc. And that our whole lives and our whole attitude to Jesus will be reflected in that split-second decision to go immediately, wow, he's back, I love him, I want to be with him. Or whether we are like the uh, foolish virgins who go away and say, yeah, I will, but just not now, I just need to prepare myself. And really like the, the girl in the Song of Solomon when, you know, he knocks on the door, and seems to be alluded to in the New Testament in relation to the return of Christ, and she wants to put her makeup on and do her hair up pretty, and uh, then she thinks, hang, you know, forget it. And she's still got the perfume dripping from her hands as she fumbles with the lock to open it, and it's too late. He's gone. The idea is that you can't get yourself ready for the day of judgment when Jesus comes. Now is the time of opportunity. And so... Here in chapter 5, you you have these allusions to the uh, Matthew 25 uh, parables continuing. He says, verse 1, About the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you, because the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. So he's not saying, don't worry about uh, knowing when Christ comes, because Christ is coming, because it's all going to be unexpected, like a a thief in the night. It is like a thief in the night to those who are unprepared, but it should not be like that for us, verse 4. Brethren, you are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. But he seems to be saying, therefore, that the greatest sign of his coming is that amongst his people there will be this peace and safety attitude and that his coming will catch them, or many of them, unawares and it will be for them as a thief in the night. 
Now, the peace and safety cry, therefore, I suggest, is within the, uh, within the ecclesia. It's within the household. And in several of the Lord's parables, he implies that there is going to be a chronic state of unpreparedness, beating the fellow servant, etc., etc. And so this idea that I am fine, I'm in my little cocoon of life and uh, no real thought for the reality of living as if Christ should come soon, he's saying that that attitude is going to be the sign. That's why you don't need to know the times and seasons. Now, I don't want to sound very old hat, you know, sort of negative and all the rest of it, like the old dears used to say in the church of my youth, that the, the biggest signs, dear, you know, they're not out in the world, they're here right within the ecclesia. Well, I know that uh, has always been said by negative people, but it, I, I have to admit that trying to interpret these verses here, that is, it seems, what he's saying. Now, the judgment of Israel at the hands of Judah, I should say, at the hands of the Babylonians, was a great type of the coming of Christ. And in Amos 6 verse 1, we're told that that judgment will come upon them that are at ease in Zion, those who think themselves secure, the AV margin says, in Zion. And again, you might want to put in there Daniel 8.25, talking again about, just before the coming of Christ, by peace or prosperity he shall destroy many. Now, this idea that basically I'm all right, Jack, um, and just cocooning ourselves away, yes, I can see that that could be a fair description of our situation today particularly, I think, with the growth of the, uh, the internet and, and the idea of sort of online relationships where you're basically just retreating into your cocoon. And I would say that humanity, certainly in the Western world, is in retreat. Retreat into themselves. Everyone's got too hurt. They've all got their hands burnt, fingers burnt in, in relationships, be it uh, America helping Israel or just people in personal relationships, and people are, re are in retreat, and they're into this peace and safety within me, um, without any real sense that all this world as we know it is soon going to finish, that Christ shall come, and one day the feet of Jesus of Nazareth will stand again on the Mount of Olives, and there shall be a great earthquake, as Zechariah 14 uh, seems to require. This passage in Deuteronomy 29:19, which uh, talks about those who hear the curses for disobedience, but blesses or forgives himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, though I walk in the imagination of mine heart, to add drunkenness to thirst. Now, I've said that the peace and safety attitude was prevalent in Israel on the very eve of the Babylonian and Assyrian invasions. And uh, you may like to scribble down a few verses uh, which talk about a peace and safety attitude, that everything's at peace, everything's safe for me, um, within Israel and Judah at that time. Jeremiah 5.12, 6.14, 14.13, Ezekiel 13.10. So, 
I, I do think that all those days of the Lord in the past were looking ahead to our final day of the Lord. And I, I think particularly that one I quoted from Deuteronomy 29.19 where the man who hears the curses for disobedience blesses or forgives himself in his heart saying, I shall have peace though I walk in the imagination of my heart to add drunkenness to thirst. That is, I think, the, self, the spiritual uh, self-assurance and conceitedness which he's getting at. That, I think, is the peace and safety cry. That I'm basically a good bloke and I'm okay. Just don't disturb me. Just don't force me to think outside of any box that I created for myself. Now, we must give that verse 5 its full weight of First Thessalonians 5. You, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. And I said when we are talking about chapter 4 that Paul is writing here on the assumption that all his brethren will be saved. And I said that that is really how we should be also in our attitude to each other, that we, we cannot condemn each other. So therefore we have to assume that every baptized believer will be in God's kingdom. Even though it's quite clear that there were plenty of people in Thessalonica and the Ecclesia who were not as strong as they might be. All this talk about don't sleep and don't be drunk in the night, you could argue that that was talking, therefore, about the situation in the Ecclesia then. In verse 14 of chapter 5, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak. There were the unruly, the feeble-minded, and the spiritually weak within that ecclesia. But Paul is so positive about the Thessalonians. It's, uh, it's a great uh, a parade example, really, of being positive about your brethren because of their status in Christ. And yet, Jesus says in Matthew 24:42, Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord does come. And yet, Paul says here, 1 Thessalonians 5, 5, You, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. And that seems to be alluding to the parable at the end of Matthew 24, the Olivet Prophecy, uh, where we're told that we should stay awake like the house manager, the steward, who knows when the thief is coming, and he therefore watches. Then Revelation 3, verse 3, If therefore you will not watch, I will come on you as a thief, and you shall not know what hour I will come upon you. So the watching is being intensely aware that Christ could come any moment. Now, let me say that I don't think, therefore, that watching for Christ's coming is the same as trying to look at world events and square them up against Bible prophecy. The watching is living your life as if you know he is about to come. That is the watching. And yet, Jesus says, Matthew 24:42, Watch therefore, because you don't know what hour your Lord comes. And I would take that, therefore, as a criticism. Not just a global statement. It's maybe, it was maybe said with a, a lament in his voice. And it's a, a good thing to think sometimes how Jesus might have said the things that he, he said. So then, we are to live as if... The return of Christ is imminent. And it's pretty difficult to sit living on the edge of your seat all your life. It's very difficult. But that, I understand, is, to, is actually part of the gospel. That we should live 
as if the coming of Christ is imminent. Now, another take on all this is that the very last generation will know for sure that Christ is about to come imminently. It could be that the sign of the Son of Man in heaven that Jesus talks about in Matthew 24 will be a literal sign, just as apparently there was a literal uh, constellation of, of stars or light uh, that hung over Jerusalem uh, in the run-up to AD 70. I don't know. It could be that Elijah will literally be back on earth and there will be miracles, etc., going on there to try to convert the Jews. It could be a number of different things which really leave us without any question that Jesus is about to come. That may be the case. But all the same, we, I, I think it, it is fair to say that we should live as if the return of Christ is imminent. And so when Paul writes as if the return of Christ shall be in his generation, we saw that in chapter 4, verse 17, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Um, he's assuming that Christ is going to come in his generation. You could say, yeah, well, Paul got that wrong, didn't he? He was just a bit enthusiastic. Or you could argue the other way. You could say that, well, he may be, yes, he hoped for it, but he was writing like that because it was for him a first principle that we are to live as if Christ is coming in our generation, and he therefore wrote about it in that way. Now, let's face something. The parable of the wise and foolish virgins says that they all slumbered and slept. And I have demonstrated that chapter 4 and 5 of 1 Thessalonians is alluding back to that parable uh, very often. So when he says, um, verse 6, Therefore let us not sleep as do others. I mean, is that not saying? Do not be like the foolish virgins in the parable. You see, for they that sleep, verse 7, sleep in the night. Verse 8, But let us who are of the day be sober, put on the breastplate of faith and, and love. He's surely saying we should not be slumbering when Jesus comes back. But the parable of the wise and foolish virgins says that they all are slumbering. Now you can sort of dodge out of that by saying, well, yeah, that's in the sense that they are all uh, sleeping in, uh, in, uh, in death and will be resurrected, but I, I don't think so. I think that's a convenient get-out. I've said that Matthew 24 is talking about the coming of Christ and the Olivet Prophecy, and that the parables that are appended to it, and the wise and foolish virgins and the beginning of Matthew 25 is one of them, that those parables are specifically, therefore, about the situation in the very last days before Christ comes, that they are specifically descriptions of the last generation, which may well be ours. Now, verse 6 then of our chapter, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Now, the, even the wise virgins, so-called, were not watching, they were asleep. Now we come on to something pretty profound at the end of this section in verse 10. Talking about God's intention to give us salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together. Now, that Greek word that is translated wake 
is the same Greek word translated watch in verse 6. Let us not sleep, but let us watch. Verse 10, that whether we, that Christ died for us, that whether we watch or sleep, we should live together with him. Just emphasize that again, and you can put a circle around these words in your Bible. First of Thessalonians 5, verse 6, let us watch and be sober. Put a circle around watch, you come down to verse 10, that Christ died for us, that whether we wake, same word, watch, or sleep, we should live together with him. Now, he seems to be saying then, that, in verse 6, let us not go to sleep, let us not be like the slumbering virgins, but the parable says that we will all slumber, and yet we know that the wise were still saved. And I think that's what he's getting at in verse 10. That because Christ died for us, because it was God's intention not to give us wrath, but to obtain salvation for us by our Lord Jesus, he died for us, that whether we watch or sleep, we should live together with him. And no wonder he says, so comfort yourselves together. That is a comfort. That's not saying, of course, that the foolish virgins will get saved. It's saying that the wise virgins who should not have gone to sleep will still be saved by grace simply on account of the fact that they so wanted to go and meet the Lord wow he's back and hang I was asleep but I will go immediately I believe in his love for me and I love him and so the difference again between the wise and foolish uh, virgins was that the wise recognized the possibility that their lamps might go out whereas the foolish thought no I'm okay peace and safety I am okay I'm no my lights not going to go out I don't need any more oil I don't need any to take any uh, thought for the possibility that I might be anything less than a bright awake uh, virgin waiting for the Lord and this will be the greatest paradox of all of history of the whole cosmos. That those who recognize their failures are the ones who shall be saved. And those who are self-righteous, who are lulled into their own sense of quasi-salvation, of peace and safety for themselves, they shall not be. And so this is a huge comfort, because if we're honest, we all recognize that we probably are slumbering. That even if Jesus was to come right now as I say these words, it would be a shock. It would be something surprising for us. We all know that we're not living as if he could come at any moment. And yet, if we have that basic belief in him, belief in his love, and this is what the breaking of bread service is all about. To focus us upon him. To persuade us yet once again that God commends his love, his desire, as he puts it in verse 9, not to give us condemnation or wrath, but to save us by our Lord Jesus Christ. Bit by bit in this life we're being taught that, so that when finally Jesus comes, 
and we realize this is it, go to meet him, we will realize that his love and his desire to save is far greater than our weakness, and quite simply, that he loves us and I love him.